Welcome back to Conversations at the Leaky Cauldron, Episode 9, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Chapters 1 through 6, and we find ourselves on this now fifth volume of this seven-volume journey, past the halfway point on another giant book, and uh, back on their broomsticks with me, or rather back on the bench with me, swigging down some butterbeer, or Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Shands. Welcome back, you two. Yeah, good to be back. Good to be back. Great intro, Alex. Thank you. I thought I would give it my best. You know, it is a new beginning right now. And I, I was thinking about that right before we started about how the closer you get with people and the farther in you get. So not only with the book and these characters, but with you all, and there is social science to back this up, the sort of more you take them for granted. And uh, actually, uh, and I, I can find the specific study for you. It's found that the people you are least polite to in the world are the people you know best. And actually, people who, um, in another study I could find uh, that Peterson mentions, people who are about to get divorced become more and more polite to each other, though more and more physiologically aroused, indicating that the more comfortable you are with people, the less you care about social conventions, but also the less you, you or I'm not sure, the less you play a role with them, but and the more you sort of take their existence as take it for granted as the, take their existence for granted. Yes, because they are like the, the tree outside of your window that is always there. And so I was thinking about that in relation to this book and in relation to y'all, just because we had recently sort of jumped out of that and taken a moment to appreciate what we've been doing here. It really is quite incredible that we are past the halfway point, even though these last few books are so long. And I'm really quite impressed with both of you and really appreciative of this project that spans all the way back to this summer. And I mean, it has withstood the, the school year very nicely, I would say. Yeah, with the pressure I, yeah, of, I, with the pressure of our school year, I had my, I had my hesitation um, that we wouldn't be able to make this like happen regularly so i'm glad to see that we have yeah it's been uh i haven't felt like it's been that long but did we start when did we start in the summer pretty early in the summer i think we've been doing this for about eight months now i think it was in june that we started um and i think we are about 40 episodes in or so um now that we changed the name I, I can't just tell by our name, but um, yeah, we've been doing this for quite a bit. So, well, I guess let's jump in with that in mind. So the six chapters we talked about today were Dudley Demented, A Peck of Owls. Are they really called A Peck of Owls? I know about A Murder of Crows, The Advanced Guard, The Avant Guard for our French, for our Francophiles, Harry, oh, I, I have here a note, Harry's Attitude. Uh, that is, that's not its own chapter, but I, I would like to touch on that theme. Seems like he's pretty angry in this book. Uh, chapter five, number 12, Grimald Place, another uh, numbered, interesting, magical place, and the noble and most ancient house of black. And so, well, where would y'all like to start with Dementors in the real world, whatever a peck of owls is, this advanced guard thing, numbers, what's on y'all's mind? Well, I guess I'll go. Um, uh, something that I um, that I noticed, and I've noticed when I um, have read this book in the past, and I think it's pretty well reflected in the film. But this particular film is way different from the book. Um, I, I was noticing really like the mo I really, movie is nothing like it. Yes, I mean, I think the movie captures a lot of the essence of the book, but there's so much that you can't do in the movie for the sake of time. I think it like, it captures the atmosphere without, which is really an interesting, an interesting comment on how books can be adapted um, to the screen, but that's for a different conversation. I was just going to say roundabout that I really like Harry's attitude. And I often, um, whenever I say this, I often, am faced or met with like the uh, harsh disagreement from others. Um, 
but I really like his imperfection here. And like, I feel for him. Um, I think his anger is by and large, really justifiable. And I'm curious how you guys reacted to it this time around. Uh, I remember vaguely, I think uh, now that I'm rereading this, when this book came out, how people, maybe this was the one I forget, but people were like commenting on how angry Harry is all of a sudden. And I guess I never was that bothered by it either. Yeah, like I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say that I really admire him particularly at this point, um, but I can sort of sympathize with him, I suppose. And the the evocation of the boredom of the summer is pretty powerful. Like with him, you know, laying on the ground to listen to the news, like that's, it doesn't get much worse than that. So, you know, if he's angry, that's understandable. Like this is how I, how I kind of look at it. Yeah, and just to speak to, um very quickly to the difference between the movie and the book. I just, I know you said it's another conversation, but it is interesting. I would, I completely agree with you that the movie gets the atmosphere or the essence of the, of the book without having the particulars that make it what it is. And that that is an interesting, that is an interesting sort of question, not only in translation from book to movie, but in language to language. Do you try and get the sense of the language or the literal language? And here the sense has been chosen. Because something that I had forgotten about, because I had not read this book in so long, because I didn't read these last books as many times as I read the first three books, maybe because they were shorter, maybe because they were the beginning of things, and I was at the beginning of things as a young person, so I identified more with that. Um, but I didn't remember the vicious, vicious argument that Dudley and Harry have, where they really dig deep on each other like brothers. It's a real Cain and Abel sort of moment. And I wondered if the coming of the Dementor, if we were going to do a sort of symbolic allegorical interpretation here, a coming together of primary and secondary world, whether that's sort of like a moment of choice for Harry, where he wants, where he might act like a Voldemort where he might take out in like a Cain-like or, or able getting revenge on Cain-like way on his cousin for saying the wrong things to him, uh, that he might take that out on him by use of magic, by use of force, by evil use of power at this moment. And then just the fact that the Dementors show up right in that moment. I wonder if that's almost either A, a godsend for him, and B, whether that's symbolic of the situation that was produced between them and the potential for something terrible to be done that puts Harry on the path of Voldemort. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, when he, um, I remember reading this the first time and when he saved Dudley, my first thought was ex like exactly, exactly that he is never going to get the credit that he deserves for saving his cousin. Um, right. And I think like, that's part of what pisses him off, right? But he's, he's pissed for a lot of reasons, which I think are worth unpacking. Like what exactly is the root of his rage? I, I think it's less about um, what's going on right now and more about like not having really dealt with the role that he played begrudgingly in the rise of, of someone who killed his parents. And I think there's a lot of like self anger as much as there is anger outwardly. But, but anyway, like as soon as he saved Dudley, which of course he had to do, I mean, he's the hero, but like, um, but you know, on the other hand, he didn't have to. And in doing so, I think it really exemplifies that line, like uh, where Cain says to, to God, like um, God says, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? You know? And like, I think very often um, the idea that that Cain actively hurts Abel. I mean, that's obviously borne out in the in the story. But but what does that look like in in our world? Like you can do harm to a lot of people without actively hurting them, but by just not intervening to help them, right? And that like, am I, is it my job to take care of other people? people who aren't me or who aren't like me. 
um, it's really easy to, I think, and like to pretend like that's not as bad as Kane, but because you're not actively hurting somebody, but, but I think the point of obviously of the story and of later in the new Testament is that like, actually, no matter who that person is, they are your brother. And yes, actually you are your brother's keeper. And I think that this first scene is just like, that's how hard it is to be your brother's keeper. You have to protect them from suffering. Uh, even if you absolutely hate their like living, breathing guts. Um, and they stand for everything that has kept you unhappy and caused you, caused you pain and suffering. Like that decision um, is, I think what separates Cain from Abel. Um, and I definitely, I think that's a really good story to, to think about because it's, hard not to think about that now that you bring it up but but yeah I I remember thinking like man he's never going to get the credit for being a good guy um because he never does and I think that's why it becomes easier and easier to just be like not my job right I'm not going to get any positive benefit out of out of intervening standing up for somebody um who isn't you know, like me, um, you know, stepping up to the plate, protecting others doesn't, doesn't help me in the long run. Right. Um, so the less and less we acknowledge those people, the, the easier it is to, I think, fall into that kind of cane like behavior where you just don't care who somebody else is, um, in relationship to you. Uh, what do you guys think? I, um, I hadn't really thought about that connection, but I, I think it is interesting how Dudley has started going down the wrong path at this point, like hanging out with the wrong crowd or maybe leading the wrong crowd to being the wrong crowd by being who he is, you know, and he's like a, he's a <laughs> pugilist. Now at this point, he's, um, you know, getting some accolades for being big and mean, basically, and that's not great. Um, but I'm I'm wondering if maybe that is part of Harry's, you know, things that Harry has not really dealt with, I guess is, you know, he's, he's put in a position where to save his own life, he has to also save Dudley's life. You know, that's kind of how it looks anyway. Um, and so he actually like can't work the spell, which is surprising given that he's had a lot of practice with this spell and he's really good at it. So I feel like there is something kind of there that's blocking him and it's the sight of his friend's faces that like unblocks it, right? That's who he hasn't seen all summer and who he was expecting to you know, hear from a lot and they just haven't been there for him. So I'm sure that's part of it too. And that, I think that makes it a little different than the Cain and Abel story maybe, but, but anyway, he also like actively directs the, the stag, um, the Patronus, he like tells it what to do, which I think is new. I'm not sure if I, if I'm forgetting, but he like tells it directly to go this way. And then, and then he whips around and he has him go and get the one that's above Dudley. Right. So it's like, he's doing more with the spell in a way than he's had to do. He's like more sort of like actively directing it. And, and maybe that's because he has to, because it's not, you know, coming as naturally to him. He's, he's mm. not doing things unthinkingly as much and he has to really kind of force himself to, to do at this time well the very least he is the antagonist in the situation with dudley which is not how it's portrayed in the movie in the movie he's portrayed as sort of like a loser sitting on a swing set while dudley and his friends are sort of hanging out together and then dudley sort of antagonizes him in the presence of his friends in a very understandable way and then harry sort of uh, whips out his wand and everybody laughs at him except for Dudley, who understands what that means. That's not exactly how it goes down here. Uh, Harry starts calling Dudley Big D after he stops hanging out with his friend Piers, the, that, that wrong or bad element that you mentioned before, that element that's turning bad because of their association with Dudley and his particular character, now the pugilist, as you said. And uh, Harry keeps calling him Big D. How long have you been Big D then? And shut it, snarled Dudley turning away again and cool name said harry i said shut it said dudley don't the boys know that that's what your mom calls you oh yeah diddikins he said earlier uh harry's really 
it 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 looks to me sort of like what the unions call transference um or mm. or excuse me not transference but displacement um of an emotion because what just happened at the end of the fourth book well cedric got killed and the dark lord came back all all and the entire time during the fourth book uh harry was dealing with the press so he dealt with infamy before in the second book but then having this sort of like conscious press campaign against him was pretty rough too and now he's like actively picking fights with the guy who's sort of like his brother who is now having praise lavished on him by his friends calling him big d as well as his mom and his dad it's sort of like how what i'm teaching in dante right now is uh, the sphere of Mars Cataguida from Cantos 14 to 18 in the Paradiso, where Cataguida explicitly says the justice of the world is very much bitter. It's inverted and upside down and bitter is its taste as in, you know, you don't get what you deserve in the world. And I feel like just to speak to both your point and to uh, Sarah's that that is sort of, um, that is sort of what brings out the cane potentially in Harry, but also what justifies this, this sort of overweening anger he has. I, I also agree with you, Wes, that I wouldn't say I hold him admirable, but I do think his anger is, I would feel the same way he feels in the same circumstance as he is in. Is, I, think, yeah. I think that's interesting. See, I just, I like that he has imperfections, right? Like I think a hero without flaw is so boring. Um, and I know that that's In maybe him. a modern, um, it, yeah, I think it's, I think it's great to see him. Um, and we've seen him be imperfect, right? Like in his classes and in his treatment of Hermione at times or in his uh, folly, right? We've seen him be imperfect or his short sightedness, but we've never really seen him like actively be uh, like a shithead, <laughs> right? Like two people. And <laughs> You know, like he's, yeah, like you said, like he's picking on Dudley. What I think is interesting is that Dudley is uh, big D, right? But he does point out that Dudley, you know, picks on people who aren't his own size, which we've known all right. along, right? Dudley has picked on Harry, who can't really physically fight back. Um, and we saw that at the end of book four, right? Voldemort dueling with somebody who was not even close to his ah. peer, in terms of, of education. And I wonder if there's something about that that really pisses off Harry, like he's in these stages of reaction and he sees in Dudley some of the same shit that he sees in Voldemort, somebody who gathers people to himself, who loves um, to be praised by them, feared rather than loved, and who picks on people who aren't his own size, right? And you know, Harry can't do anything about Voldemort because he doesn't even know where the heck he is, but he can pick on, he can scare Dudley, right? Um, and that, I think that's an, another dimension of it, maybe. Um, the other thing I think, I think, too, is that, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Anyway, just, just that one. <laughs> I hate when that happens, by the way. <laughs> And that happens to me all too often. Yeah, Wes. Oh, I was just gonna, I was just gonna comment on the um, the use of capital letters. I don't know if this is that interesting, but it just sort of leapt out at me as I was reading it this time. That um, it's a thing that Rowling does quite a bit, actually. She uses the uh, the the uh, the caps lock to like represent um, the shouting yeah. stuff, you know, but. She also tends to do it when it's like, you know, a really important spell. Because normally spells are um, in Latin or sort of Latinate, you know, and then they're italicized, which is fitting, I guess. But, um, but in this case, it's like you get sort of both of those things. So there's just like this eruption of, you know, anger plus um, magic, which is kind of a new thing to see coming from Harry, I think. And, and yeah, it does kind of it makes him a little more interesting, maybe. And, um, a little more relatable. Uh, it's also the case that like this use of magic um, is it is really problematic in lots of ways, um, not least like legalistically, as we'll see it, like it forms kind of the, the first arc of the, the whole thing where he's like in trouble for using magic, right? He's going to get expelled. That's part of it, but it's also problematic because it's like, 
you know, th it's this spell that means so much to him that was like he thought his he saw his father using it, you know, and it's like it's a very personal spell in a lot of ways that the, the stag that comes out is sort of the representation of his, his ideal of his father, right? But it's also this thing that, you know, he he's um he's forced to save this person that he despises, you know, and he does it again, like he does it um with with great difficulty. Well, yep. isn't yeah. that? Oh yeah, go on. It, I was just gonna say, isn't that maybe also just a parallel to what he? Ex Sorry, um, can you all hear me? Yes. I was just gonna say, like, isn't that sort of a a parallel to what he experienced in the um, in the graveyard? Like, um, and and I think it's a nice foreshadowing of, um. Uh, what we learn at the end of the fifth book in the Department of Mysteries. Um, if you don't remember that part, we'll we'll get to it soon. But just this idea that that like fates can be intertwined, right? Like um, there's no such thing as saving only good people and and not saving people who maybe quote unquote don't deserve it or something like that. Like right. you either do what's right or you don't do what's right. And either one of those has consequences. But I think another theme of the book that will emerge is that, like, yeah, the stag from his Patronus represented his father, but his notion of who his father was was, like, extremely incomplete and um, romanticized, idealized, um, cleansed of, it, of imperfections, right, of, of truth. And the, the truth about who his father was is um, not something that he has access to because maybe because he's wearing the wrong kind of glasses or maybe because he doesn't have all the information. Um, and that, but that like, he's gonna start to learn more and more about other people who he's previously written off or who um, everyone says are crazy, like, or loony. Um, but, but now he's in a position to, to see things with new eyes, I think, and and maybe um, maybe the fact that he's now experiencing magic, and it's really powerful, but it's almost born of, of anger and rage, or it's it's I don't know, it's somehow compounded by that. Like stuff is new for him now, and and as well it should be because he just saw someone die, right? Um, in front of him, someone whose life he very well could have saved had he not suggested that they take the, you know, the, the cup together uh, or something like right. that. Right. And we'll see that later with the Thestrals and seeing them. And again, continuing to see those layers of things we could not see before. And I think that's such an interesting connection you're making, because I think what you're saying is part of the reason why he couldn't summon the, uh, the Patronus charm and how you were connecting that with, how he, his vision of his father is going to alter, get more sophisticated and darken, is that his Patronus there is a representation of his perception, not only of his father, but of the great father, his civilization and his people, and that he no longer has access to sort of the pure childish joy that he had before, which allowed him to cast a Patronus, thinking that the father would give him pure protection. But now, now he sort of has there's an element of perfunctoriness and there's also that death looming behind him. And it's almost like the, the, the happy thought that once gave him strength no longer has right. the right juice. He has to re sort of right. organize his personality now to deal with the more sophisticated and darker world right. in order to achieve the same effect. Uh, he has to fight the darkness within himself as he reconstitutes himself. It seems like. Which is something that we've we've talked about all along um, at different points, but that it really does seem important, like who the caster of the spell is and where they are in their development. Like the the spell is more obviously than just the words and the movement of the wand. But you know, if he has to recalibrate and re-identify a new memory that um, uh, it, you know makes him feel the happiest and warmest in the world, uh, you know that can conjure this Patronus, it suggests that, that like, 
I don't know that his that that the mad the magic that they have to perform is somehow like evolves within the person as well. Bang. That's great. And I wanted to connect that too with the idea that you both just gave me that remember when Mad Eye Moody first uh taught the Avada Kedavra curse and he was like, hey, you can't just say it. You got to put some powerful magic behind it. I wondered if that was also sort of what we were seeing with the Patronus too. And what you were noting, Wes, with the, um, not, only Itali- not only the italics, but the, the capital letters, because he tries Expecto Patronum at first, lower, you know, the capital E, capital P, but lowercase rest of the words. But then Expecto Patronum, which we remember from the movies, he has to really mean it. He has to have some emotional force behind it, sort of like how Avada Kedavra has to have like some emotional force behind it. And I wonder if they're supposed to be opposing sort of magics and whether you would also connect that to sort of holy versus meteor, uh, that Harry Potter is here sort of harnessing the same force that gives Voldemort power, but using it towards different ends. It, it makes me, yeah, it makes me think of, you know, Voldemort's elaborate plan to capture Harry Potter. You know, he could have just had... Uh, his agent, Bart, Bartimus Crouchwright uh, Jr., just cast Avada Kedavra on Harry in the middle of class, right? Harry's dead. Right. End, right? But he doesn't, he just can't let anyone else do the, the spell, right? The spell is determined by the person, it seems like. And, and that's like the whole point of, <laughs> I guess that's kind of the whole point of the story. <laughs> yeah, well, and so I, I do, I'm tempted just to say, and what do you think that means? But yeah, so I, I do want to ask, I do want to ask you, what, what do you think that means that the spell, though, though with, has sort of a traditional or generalized structure, ultimately derives its power from the person? Is that sort of like how Dante suggests that the role, the roles that exist derive their powers from individual people and how well they play them? Something like that. Uh, what are you thinking? I'm just thinking like each of these books is Harry Potter and the such and such, right? It's like, he's the central character. And so we, we have, we have no story without him. Um, that's all I meant by it really. Okay. Okay. So speaking of our, our further darkening view of things or our, I suppose I'm saying darkening as if things are literally getting darker and i guess literally they are and that does seem to be the narrative arc that fantasy ethics take i think we'll see that again both with narnia and with um uh the hobbit and the lord of the rings but um i i think it's more that it gets dark because you start to see more of what exists it's as if your immediate projection is edenic or like a golden age when you first come here it's like it's a place of escape when we first come to this world. And this is something Wes and I have sort of been talking about in Final Fantasy VII to uh, Sarah, as we get to the second half of that very, very long game and endeavor. It, it's, it's like at first, this fantasy world offers you an escape, but then it shows you a mirror. And I think it's almost like that's what great fantasy epic literature does. It draws you in with its siren's call of a new, another world, and then bang, it shows you smack dab, it measures you. It shows you smack dab in your face uh, what exists in all worlds and thus who you are and who you would be in a different world, I think, as well. That's a, a really interesting formulation. I think um, it sounds like I have literally no experience with Final Fantasy 1 through 7. I assume that there's 1 through 6 since it's numbered seven, but, um, I think Tolkien's, uh, you know, the essay on fairy stories would kind of back you up on that evaluation that escape is definitely a a primary function. I, I do, I always get the vibe that this one is darker, maybe because the emotions are darker, maybe because there isn't as much like, uh, fun. I mean, I think there's Quidditch in this book, but, um, you know, they're not school supply shopping and having ice cream at Florian Fortescue's. There's not like, there's none of that, none of like the, the kiddies, the kiddie stuff, you know, I think there, um, there is some discussion of like really fun jokes that Fred and George are, are developing, but even behind those jokes, 
Yes. Those are some like dark, dark pranks. I mean, I, yeah. And they're insubordinate. <laughs> I think we see them in a different light in this book when we really get to them. Yeah. I mean, uh, the whole house of 12 Grimmauld Place is dark. Um, it's, it's darkened. It's, it's like damp. There is a lot of like physical darkness. Um, you know, and of course our, our primary world has a lot of darkness. There's also a lot of light in it, but, um, you know, maybe we're coming to the point where, um, you kind of have to be engulfed in things that are dark, um, uh, in order to see how light maybe breaks through. There's this person I follow on Instagram who I really like, and she talks about pain, waiting and rising and how that is like, that's just kind of life. I mean, it's a very Christian way of looking at life. That's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But um, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of Christological elements here. I know I've said that before, but um, yeah. I, I was just looking at the, uh, the sort of the magic question and thinking about like, the perspective that we get on um, on the the way that it's like so dangerous, like we were talking about this a little before, but you know, it's so dangerous that it has to be like very forcibly um, um, restricted, you know, and um, the way that uh, so many people um, are so concerned with Harry Potter, like particularly with his use of magic, like it matters a lot with everybody, obviously, because it's always magic. But but there is something special about Harry, right? Where he gets he gets the peck of owls that that comes out uh, after his use of of un, um, unregistered magic or whatever, right? There's like it's kind of comical how quickly and thick and fast they come flying through. Um, how he is um, forced to sort of like explain himself you know, but he can't explain himself to anybody who matters. So he's just like forced to explain himself to, uh, to his uh, uncle and, and his aunt. And then, and then it turns out, right, that, um, that his aunt knows way more than she's been letting on, like all along. Um, it turns out that Mrs. Fig, the crazy cat lady, has been a magical person all along, even though she's a squib and can't actually use magic. You know, she does sort of like have cat magic of some kind, because she seems to communicate with Mr. Tibbles. So, but like, there's there's apparently like way more magic going around um, and it's just like very effectively kept hidden. It seems to be like the, the message here. And um, and Harry, like what he's done is is especially bad, like in ways he doesn't even realize by by using magic in, in front of somebody else. You know, he knows he's not allowed to do it. He, he had to do it and everyone's telling him like, it's gonna be okay, you'll get off. But but there is something like, there's something profane about that almost, right? To use magic in a in an un um, uh, in a in a in a way that's like out there in the regular old world, you know, almost like something uh, uh, that is so personal to you that you're like letting out there, you know, sort of like the the reason that he gets insulted in the first place, like Dudley talking about his parents, right? It's it's kind of the same thing that he's just done. He's taken magic out and and sort of um, shown it where it can't be uh, can't be allowed. And on that note, just of sort of an inappropriate vulgarizing or or desacralizing or secularizing or what is what is the actual technical term for profaning? That is the word you use, right? When like what you would do if you caught the Ark of the Covenant if it were falling off its holsters. But also the Dementor being there in Privet Drive is itself also a trespass upon the normal world. And I, I wonder, and I might not be seeing this right because I've made this point earlier and so it might mean something else, but still agree with your point along different lines. Um, but how is it, how, could the, is the Dementor also a symbol showing up here in this, in the normal world? of how the primary and the secondary world are supposed to now be actively interacting, are supposed to, we are now supposed to sort of be seeing more of ourselves in these, these books or learning about our own worlds in these books rather than simply escaping from it. That 
what ha is happening now has an element of darkness and thus is more complex and sophisticated. And so we as readers are expected to, uh, I, I don't know, bring the lessons uh, from the secondary world into the primary world, embody them in our own lives, or, or, or just, or, or is it on a weaker level just that we should be in some way that the fictional worlds in, in which we find ourselves have an effect on the real world in which we live and that that's why we indulge in those worlds and that they can have a negative or a positive effect depending on how we use them. Well, I, I sort of hadn't, I hadn't considered like the meta um, implications of that the Dementor arriving on Privet Drive being kind of like a, a you know, a, a literary technique to remind the reader that, you know, now it's getting real for you. I just sort of thought it was like a blurring of the world, kind of the way, um, the way uh, Aunt Petunia knows more about the magical world than she has ever let anyone know, including her husband. Um, or, um, you know, they're the way I, I, I sort of listened ahead, but the way they get to the ministry. Um, we saw some of that, I guess, in, in the beginning of book four. And there's always been um, like moments of interface, right? Um, but usually those moments where uh, um, the, the primary world of London and the magical world of, you know, wizards. <laughs> Um, usually when we see them colliding, it's because they are, uh, the characters are moving from one world to another. They're like crossing a threshold from say platform nine to platform nine and three quarters or, um, you know, from Privet, Privet Drive to Hogwarts or something like that on a, on a, you know, flying car. But I think, you know, there isn't a lot of, they do fly, I guess, um, in, chapter three or four but there isn't a like when the dementor arrives nobody's moving from the muggle world to the wizarding world it's just sort of like like you said like a trespass or an interruption i don't know it it to me it's more it's i didn't see it as a as a meta uh comment on like story but i saw it kind of more as a as a you know a, a representation of what emotions do like um they uh. trespass um they they interrupt they uh explode they cross boundaries when you don't want them to right dementors are supposed to be at azkaban just like all of your feelings are supposed to be you know tucked away in proper little boxes that you deal with when you go to yoga um but but i i, I that that simmering anger that he is feeling um and he, you know, explodes at Dudley, he explodes at his, um, you know, at his aunt and uncle, at Ron and Hermione, uh, at other people um, who really just want the best for him, with the exception of the Dursleys. But, um, you know, a lot of that is like, it's, it's misdirected. It's, it's things being out of order and, as a, and, and out of control, maybe just beyond your reach. And so they, they pop out every now and then. Like, she, like the way Aunt Petunia um, uh, announces or explains that piece of magic, I, I'm forgetting exactly what specific piece it is, but it's almost like she didn't even know she knew it or that she was going to say that before it just came out of her mouth. Like there's just some stuff that you can't control and maybe pretending like it's not there or... I don't know that, or he's not coming back, or it's all good. I feel fine. Like um, that kind of pretense, it, it doesn't work. Like it might work temporarily, but it, we all know that it doesn't work in the long run, individually, interpersonally, societal, you know, societally, like this, this falsehood that like, there are even boundaries. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm making any sense, but you're making perfect sense. I sort of, yeah. That's how I saw that, honestly. 
Yeah. And what, you, what you were mentioning was Aunt Petunia's knowledge that Dementors guarded Azkaban. But uh, Wes, what did you right. make of that? Um, I'm not trying to set anything up, but it does remind me of both the story of sort of Adam and Eve and also the story of sort of the Buddha, as Peterson tells it, just of sort of walls that are eternal seeming and keep out all the bad things that inevitably crumble and let something like a bad idea or the thought of death or or generally the thought of death is how it works with the Buddhists and with the, uh, and, and in the Eden story, I'm just, yeah, I would, I mean, Sarah, I completely agree with you that it's emotions breaking in on your consciousness and showing you who's really in charge and that, that I just think that's a very powerful interpretation. And I guess I just wanted to also make those two other connections, see whether they're appropriate and then ask Wes, what do you think about that? Because I, I thought that was very strong. Uh, the, the Buddha, um, connection, I'm not sure how to go there exactly. Um, I mean, in, in a general sense, I could see the, the idea like that you sort of are conscious of death. Um, Oh, sorry, sorry. That comes from the specific story of how he gets exposed to death after his father, the king keeps him within a sort of uh, paradisical garden. He gets exposed to an old man and thus learns about death, and that destroys his sort of happy state when he's young. Um, I'm not making a general Buddhist comment. I'm referring to a specific story about the Buddha that directly relates to the Genesis story. So, so like the consciousness of death, though, like that's the right, that's sort of the right, thing. right. That's what breaks in on him and destro destroys his initial sort of uh, naive inner peace. Well, yeah, I mean, um, at this point, we have to imagine that Harry is capable of killing, right? Like, we have to sort of have that somewhere in our heads. And so that's sort of like the ultimate expression of this anger that he's, um, you know, bottled up and released and like, that's sort of wrecking his uh, his happy picture of even of Ron and Hermione at this point, right? So it's like, that is sort of the um, that that and the, then the idea that there is something like worse than death, which seems to be what the Dementors can also represent, right? Like to lose your soul in, in the kiss is is worse than than dying, um, simply like leaving the world, you know. Um, and and so that seems to be also there too, like in the background, um, or you could think of like. Neville Longbottom's parents um so something like that I, I mean I I kind of feel like Harry is you know he's not killing anyone but he's he's close to it with Dudley um and then saves his life of course but he's also like really not doing a a terribly good job of um of uh forgiving Ron and Hermione uh or at least not at this point um oh. you know for 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 leaving him in the dark for a long time over the summer you know making him ignominiously dig out newspapers and then not actually read the newspapers very carefully right like it's weird it's it's a weird uh conflict that that sort of is brewing there um but again i i can sort of I can sort of uh, sympathize with him if if he's, you know, gone through so much and, you know, he's had so many things taken away from him. But at this point, it's almost like he's pushing things away from him also. See, I agree. And, and yeah, I'm, go on, Sarah. I was just, I was just going to say I'm I'm not a psychologist um, or psychiatrist or you know well versed in any of the of those fields, but um, you know, it does seem to me that like his anger at not receiving news from Hermione and Ron, that's not really why he's mad at them. And I really, I don't know that his, he's actually mad at them. I think he's mad at his circumstance. And that's part of why I think he's like, so I think that's part of why Sirius gravitates towards Harry and maybe blurs the line between parent, godparent and child. Um, and I think that's part of why he feels comforted around his godfather is that, like, I think he's angry that his, like, he, he witnessed his mother and his father, well, at least his mother, die. But he had no 
limited conscious memory of it. And what memory he did have of it came in fits and starts and it terribly disturbed him. And, but there was literally nothing he could have done. And, and I guess I'm just saying this from the perspective, I mean, we're all teachers. I don't know if any of you have had the terrible misfortune of losing a student, but I have. And that's how I've been to more funerals of young people than I care to say. Um, some by their own hand, um, which are extraordinarily difficult, and some, um, you know, freak medical um, scenario or a car accident. And there is nothing more, um, I, the, the funerals for young people are just different. Um, they're just different. And, and you are faced with this ugly, unjust, unfair, inappropriate reality of our world. It is wrong that people that age die. And, and I, 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 I sympathize with Harry in this moment because I have felt the rage that he feels. It's not, it's, 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 yes, he's angry that they didn't write him or give him information, but he's really, I think he's angry at what he had to witness. Or at least that's how I understand the extremity of his rage and how nothing that he blames it on is really that bad. And he's not crazy, but I really, I think he's just haunted. And there's Could a level this? of, I, con sorry. No, go for I think, it. I think, I think you, you, you hit it. I think what might be under, because what you see is that there's something underlying the rage and you're, uh, and you're connecting that to Cedric's death. And I think perhaps more specifically, could it be the fact that Harry is questioning why he survived Voldemort and destroyed him? And, and on the one hand, and then on the other hand, Cedric, who was so great at everything, was just callously killed by him. And then Harry had some part in then bringing Voldemort back around so that there's some sort of absolutely yeah yeah there, there's a there's a twisted guilt happening here i mean again i'm not a psychologist i've seen enough of the uh, the psycho babble tv shows to maybe like pretend <laughs> but i am not you know but but i think there i think there's so that story about the buddha i i am not familiar with the story but the adam and eve story right the the knowledge of good and evil like the knowledge of your mortality um like when you come face to face with that, that is no, that is not inconsequential. And like, I, I, I just, no, I think that that is, and I think that's why there's like, uh, that's why it's, it all seems like he's overreacting, right? Like, cool it, bud, enjoy your summer, but, or actually freaking pick up the newspaper, the daily prophet and read it, right? He's not, He's not totally daft. I think there's a part of him that actually doesn't want information because hmm. it would confirm what he has done, right? Or, and not, not that he was actively you know, excited about being a party to the return of Voldemort, but he was there. Um, he had a wand and he clearly was somehow able to or ordained to survive again. And there's some, there's like, I don't know, there's, there's an inappropriateness that I, I sense from his circumstance that I think I'm like reading into some of the way he reacts to people. Um, and, and I don't know if that, that makes any sense, but at that story of the Buddha being like fundamentally altered, right? Is that the story by, by yes. like coming face to face for the first time with like people die? Yeah, he, that is he's a, exposed in three that's different intense. ways. Yeah, the first one is to somebody who's, I think, crooked with disease. The second one is someone who's old. And then the third one is someone who's dead. And he asks his advisor each time, what is that? And each time the man answered, a man. And Buddha says, well, I'm a man. Does that mean that will happen to me? And the advisor says, well, certainly, as you are a man, these things will happen to you. And sort of he retreats back into his home, but then comes back out and keeps being exposed over and over again to these truths that he then has to sort of face. I mean, you know, I know that this isn't a podcast on Shakespeare, but this is something that when I was teaching at Gonzaga, we 
one of the classes I taught was classic lit and following on the heels of the inferno was Hamlet. And I think it's, that's, Hamlet is a great example of someone who is not actually angry with, I mean, with anybody beyond, without just cause. I mean, he's angry at his, um, at his uncle because his uncle deserves it. But I think he's really like terrified at the prospect of death. He doesn't understand it for all of his philosophy. It doesn't, you know, um, it's the one thing he should understand about humanity, but he doesn't quite get it and it haunts him. And it's not until the end when he like makes his peace with the fact that like, you know, if my death be not now, it will come. And like tears in his eyes, he goes off to this great duel, not knowing he's going to die, but comfortable with it. Um, and I don't know. I, I think that that that's something it, it sounds really morbid. But it's something that I think is like at the heart of a lot of classic literature is like coming to terms with this, this thing, this thing that like is both wrong and right. Um, it's wrong when it happens to people like Cedric and when you feel like you could have done something about it. Or maybe you should have done something about it. Um, I don't know. That's more than any 15 year old should have to handle in my in my book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, it seems like that's part of what's behind the, um, the sort of overtures that Sirius is making here to Harry, right? Like, there's something a little off about this, like, you know, he's kind of pushing uh, Harry more into the adult world, right? But it's sort of like there's also a rightness about it because Harry's already been pushed into that world, and so he sort of deserves to, like, know a little bit about what he's up against. So. So it's that same kind of like wrongness and rightness seems like it's kind of active with um with Sirius and and yeah. you know, Mrs. Weasley has a similar like she's right in a way and she's wrong in a way and it's it's really interesting their kind of little argument there um I, I don't know like there's a few big arguments that we see um you know Harry yelling at um Dudley and Harry yelling at his aunt and uncle and then uh Harry yelling at Ron and Hermione, but also um, Sirius, like doing his bit of um, of arguing here. He's like, "This is his house, and you know he's Harry's godfather, and by golly, he's gonna let Harry like know a little bit more about what's going on here." And and the reader too, for that matter, right? Like we're we're probably kind of chomping at the <laughs> bit, just like know what the heck is going on, because <laughs> that's all we've been getting for like eighty pages so far. <laughs> it's like we want to know what's going on, you know. Um, uh, and it's very tantalizing what they sort of come to, right? Like, you know, something that uh, even Voldemort couldn't get before is like what he's trying to get now, and and that's that's when we finally get you know sent to bed. Um, and I don't know, like there there's some there's some interesting kind of um, a conflict between you know people who both want the right thing for Harry there, which is a new kind of level of of uh, complexity maybe. And just to go meta again, just uh, to what extent is that an inner sort of monologue and conflict within the writer herself, J.K. Rowling, between the sort of Aragorn-like ranger who knows the darkness, who can bring us to knowledge of things we did not know before, and the maternal motherly figure of Mrs. Weasley, who's been around far longer than the serious dark figure has, though, though he is the one that has the rights to us technically, which is interesting. Uh, to what extent is this an inner conflict within J.K. Rowling that she solves by, by you know, slowly bringing us into the fold, slowly exposing us to evil? To what extent is she, she sort of uh, educating us or bringing us forward and into the world, helping to develop us as young people into uh, more capable mm. young people, more understanding of the darkness in the world and sort of our place within it no i think i think that's a great point um like how is the um i think when we looked at um on fairy stories we talked about maybe um the the fantasy author as like you know the the secondary world creator is godlike but she's also like you said as soon as it turns into holding up a mirror and not just creating another world, but also saying something about the primary world in it, there is an educative 
or an, an educational piece of this. I think it's, I think that's an interesting, an interesting piece. Wes, what you mentioned about like getting to learn the, the big kid information, but then being sent to bed. I mean, that is just, to me, the height of adolescence, right? Like we've been talking about this all along, like, you know, burgeoning uh, sexuality with the mandrakes <laughs> in book two and all of the social dynamics <laughs> that they start to display or display poorly, um, the kinds of things that are developmentally appropriate. Like this is the time when like the world gets dark and you get emo, right? And like that, I, I think that this is like on this, this makes sense, at least to me as a, a former adolescent and an observer of, of adolescence on a, on a daily basis. But like that kind of moodiness that he is prone to um, is particular, but like then being sent off to bed because now we reach the point where you're not old enough to handle it. Right. Like that's just right. like uh, you can drive, but you can't vote right? Or you can get a job, but you have to be home at this time. Like those types of like emergence versus um, like regression. I don't know. I think that that's a, that's a pretty good um, metaphor for, for growing up, but it makes something that you were saying, Alex, earlier about like um, when you asked what, what does it mean that they're, that like, that there is a person behind the mat, like you have to like mean things, that there has to be some kind of like emotional component uh, behind uh, uh, the the language of a spell or the movement of a wand. Um, it, it just means that I feel like that them going to school is so much, is just as our students are, is about knowledge of self um, rather than it is about um, knowledge of trigonometry, um, as important as that might be um, for say like building a bridge. Um, it just means that like what they do at their school needs to be at its core, teaching them, um, to know who they are so they can put like the appropriate part of themselves into the, into the language of whatever it is that they're trying to, trying to do. I think Tonks is a pretty good example of that. Like somebody who like, uh, <laughs> She's a great character. Um, she might be my favorite. Um, who like uh, always wants to help in the kitchen, but like never learned all any of the spells to help in the kitchen. Um, and I think yes, she's a great example of somebody who like maybe doesn't quite totally know herself yet, but like she's a young person. I, I don't know. I think that sort of and I think that's represented right by her ability right she can still morph into things physically speaking mm -hmm. it's like a young person who's still protean who can still pick their path to some extent she does change her hair so often i think and she doesn't call herself an animagus she's a some it's a funny sort of magus there's like there's an extra syllable to it uh, I, I don't know if either of y'all recall that um what in any case we can look it's at something something more like some i i don't know Oh yeah, what it is that exactly. also sounds right. Yeah, and morph, morphate, the form, the platonic forms. In any case, I want to ask you just one last question before we go tonight about uh, what did y'all think of Creature in the Black Manor with the screaming black portrait, Mrs. Black, the mother of Sirius and how it has to be covered, but more about Creature and also more specifically, what did you think of Hermione's perception of Creature sort of sympathetically uh, taking the sort of, let's see, the root causes of his behavior perspective. And Ron's sort of disgust with Creature and Sirius is also hating of him. What did y'all, what did y'all think of that? Because Creature is very different from Winky and Dobby. I, yeah, I, I thought he's, uh, he's pretty, like, adolescent in a way, you know, like he's very sullen and, um, he'll sort of like shoot you a dirty look when you're not looking, you know, he's like, he, he represents something of that as well. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he's terrifying, frankly. Uh, and so is the, 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 the picture that they have to keep covered cause it just like yells at them all the time. Like that, that's a pretty powerful evocation of like 
the the complete opposite of Harry Potter, who's like got this you know lack of a family, and that tears him up. Well, Sirius has this like overbearing family, and that's tearing him up, you know, in in sort of an equal and opposite horrible way. Right, and we even lit- literally find out at his home that he is related that most purebloods like him are related and that he is really related to bellatrix lestrange as well as to the malfoys of all of all people and hmm and i i do think it's interesting that he's sullen in the same way that sirius is as if being exposed to that sort of freudian monster mother uh does something like that stunts the man as it were, to some extent, and to keep him forever, as, as she now has done with Sirius, who is imprisoned there with her and with Creature. Uh, perhaps it is a comment on the power of a mother to stunt the growth of a man so that he'll never fly free, and that that is what has made Sirius so resentful, because he has been imprisoned so much of his adult life, hasn't he? And I suppose that's also metaphorically what it means to be imprisoned by one's family, like you stay in that psychological state, and then you produce this physical state around you it's like Sirius will never ever exist outside of prison which is a depressing thing to say that's really sad but he also he experienced like a lot of unusual freedom at the age of 17 when he ran away right so it's almost as though he didn't he didn't kind of fly the nest in a in a normal way I think it's interesting to like contrast that with Molly Weasley who seems a little overbearing um right but maybe right like is a is another like another mom in the same space i don't know i know I, i'm not really sure where to go from there but i think we're supposed to see her i think as a far more ideal mother maybe not the ideal but i guess i could be wrong um you know just but someone who knows like what is appropriate um doesn't is like unswayed by like whiny children um i think the the situation with percy is particularly interesting because i think it points out that like i don't know you can have great parents and parents can can be great with a variety of different kids but look at how different all of their children are right they, and like the parents are the exact same. The home is a, is similar. I mean, it, it evolves as their kids, you know, grow into it. But I think I'm, I'm, I'm that division between uh, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley and Percy. I don't know. It seems awfully reminiscent of something we were talking about with Mr. Crouch and young Mr. Crouch about like fathers and sons or mothers and sons. I'm not sure. I don't really have anything else besides that. No, but. no, no. I know, I know. I feel like I'm in the same place. So, Wes, is there something? Did you want to comment on that to bring it home, or did you have something else? Well, I I had been thinking about Percy and sort of how he fits into this, but uh, the it seems like you know he's he sort of represents a a, a turn to um you know like ambition or or something like that, um, which Sirius has. Uh, has rejected right like they're, they're an interesting um, parallel as well right because you know Sirius has this very noble and, and wealthy family which he has like rejected um, whereas Percy's got this uh, you know great good but poor and and sort of un um, not very notable or whatever family which he has rejected um, so they, they sort of you know, cross paths in a, in a real interesting way there. Um, I, I, you know, Percy has been just like, you know, not a very likable character from the start. Um, and, uh, and he, he sort of actually gets a little more interesting. I feel like as the, as the series goes on and, you know, he's, he's not just, um, trying to be like the perfect, um, you know, model student anymore. Now he's sort of like, he's really like thrown his lot in with the ministry. Uh, and he's he's really gonna just see where that takes him. It seems like um, to to the extent that he he'll uh, you know tr- be a kind of a traitor to his family. It's rough. 
I know to some extent he reminds me of those of our friends from St. John's who got the PhD rather than going the independent route. But I know that's harsh and funny thing to say. That said, there are some controversies going on in the humanities departments these days uh, and some interesting things being said about old Hogwarts, if we can make that connection. And so I suppose we're going to have to make sure that Albus Dumbledore stays in charge and keep doing these sorts of podcasts so that we can shed some light on what's going on. Um, well, y'all, I'm, uh, I'm still loving listening to Audible, imbibing stories in the original way. And uh, hmm. so I'd love to do as many chapters as y'all can conceivably ingest and want to speak of. Um, I'm ready to Caesarian march through this thing. But I could also <laughs> take time as well um you know i could either be italian or roman about this as y'all desire <laughs> what do y'all think well Wes, what do you think what's what's doable for you i am on midwinter break next week so i've got nothing but time oh wonderful um, wonderful i i mean we would meet professor umbridge if we got through 12 and we would have detention with her if we got through 13. Oh, damn. So that does through 12. I mean, we did six for today. Does another six sound doable? Yeah, because that gets us to, we get to meet a lot of interesting new characters. So, yeah, that seems good through 12. Okay. Okay. Well, awesome, so Jan. Through Thank 12. You. Yeah. Awesome. And just so the listeners know, just to give y'all some public love, y'all switched days. Uh, from Monday to Wednesday for me this week. And I really appreciated that. So thank you very much y'all. And uh, I'm really looking forward to doing this next one with you. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. All right. Take it easy. Take it easy. Bye.